Amen. Good morning. That was awesome. I always love that song. Um, so let's see. We got the recorder going. Got to do my checklist. Notes are here. Videos on. Slides are up. Wow, we're good. Things are good. Uh, just want to encourage everybody. It's been a great service so far. Just thanks uh, to. It's just great to be able to be a part of a family like this. And to share as vulnerably as was shared by Larry. Um, and I know that Teresa would have shared had she been able to be here just as vulnerably. So we're very grateful for that example. Uh, we're grateful to be able to talk like that. I know for me as a young man, it was, it was just not normal to be able to talk with humility or vulnerability. And I had to learn that from Christian men. I had to learn that from disciples. Um, and, and like Larry said, not just people who knew that, you know, acquiesce that God exists or acknowledge that God exists, but actually see the truth of that in their lives. So I'm just grateful to be a part of that. I love you guys. Um, and so I just don't want to, um, let, let's not let that pass without really being grateful for what we have here. Uh, and so amen for that. Uh, and a lot of gratitude um, for you guys. Uh, speaking of the family of God, there's a, been a, uh, there, was a, there was a video put out by our sister church uh, in uh, Florida, actually the, the Broward Church of Christ. And it's the same area where there was the shooting recently. And... Um, uh, I think his name's Tony Fernandez, right? Tony, uh, Tony put out a video recently basically calling on all, uh, any churches that want to join. Uh, there were 17 victims at the shooting, and, and obviously their community is going through it right now. Um, but he's called on all the churches that want to, uh, to be able to fast uh, one meal a day for 17 days. So to fast for one meal a day for 17 days for one for each victim. Uh, of the shooting, and really a goal here to, to fast, to pray for God, to be able to work in these times of suffering, uh, both uh, in Florida, but you know, obviously this is, doesn't hit too far away from home for us, in the idea of evil in the world, and that evil being brought to our forefront, and how do we deal with that as a church? How do we deal with that? How do we respond to it? Uh, and so this is a great opportunity, and so actually the Potomac Valley Church and the Roanoke Valley Church are going to do this as well. And it's a call for all of us to be unified in this. Anybody that wants to do this fast, one meal a day for 17 days, we encourage you to go after this, to, to be able to start today, and to know that the other churches are going to do the same thing. If you like, as always, all the normal stuff with a fast, you know, you don't have to do it. If you want to adjust, you can. Uh, if you want to uh, make it work for you, fair enough. It's really, you know, obviously Jesus says when you fast, don't tell anyone, don't make it a big deal. But there are lots of congregational fasts in the Bible, and the goal is to be able to remind us that it's not about us coming up with a new strategy to fix the world. It's really about us realizing that, you know, man does not live on bread alone. Uh, we actually rely on every word that comes from the mouth of God, that God's going to be the one to deliver from all this evil, not some new legislation, not some, you know, and those things can help, but not, we can't rely on men to fix what we're talking about here. Amen. We got to go to God to really be able to deliver us from this evil. So that's a really exciting news. If you'd like to go for it, to begin that, amen, that starts today. And let's be praying for our sister church there uh, in the Broward Church. Uh, I'll put the video up on the Facebook page if you'd like to watch the video that Tony made, just to encourage. And this is a time we can also be unified with our brothers and sisters all over the world, uh, which is very encouraging and exciting. So amen. Hop over to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to continue in our theme of grace-driven transformation. Um, And we're going to look at the next verse in Philippians. Now, uh, it's starting to pick up. In Philippians, we've been uh, looking at just the first chapter so far, and it's been an awesome path. It's been an awesome uh, discovery so far, just to even kind of see the relationship that Philippi had with Paul and the friendship they had. 
And you can all, all, almost sense, like, you know, at the end of Paul's letters, and I think this is a powerful um, discrepancy that can happen even between our churches today. Is, yeah, the, well, Paul will write a letter to Philippi and at the very end be like, hey, thank Bob and Steve and Renee and, you know, tell them all I'm praying for them. And you're going, hey, how does he know Renee and Bob and Steve? And then he writes to the church in Colossae, you know, Colossians. And he writes to Romans. He goes, hey, say hi to Phoebe uh, for me, you know, say hi to Priscilla and Aquila. He just kind of knows everybody, right? How does, he, how does he really know that? And you get the sense that Paul, even though he moved a lot, had these really great friendships, these really great true friendships. Not, not to the point of like, hey, you need to just change. But hey, tell Phoebe I remember her or tell Priscilla and Aquila I miss them. Or tell, you know, even in this letter, uh, there's a lot of name drop, you know, Paul using name drop uh, not droppings, that doesn't sound good, name droppings. Um, but name drops, right, uh, to be able uh, to just, and it gives us a sense of how much friendship there really was in the letter. And just to remind everybody, what we're looking at here in Philippi, this is a very unique place. This is a Roman colony, and a Roman colony of Roman colonies. Now, what does that mean? It means it was a city that basically gets all the same rights and privileges as Rome, and Rome, basically, in being in control of all of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean at this point, Spain all the way over to, to um, Asia Minor, down over to Israel, back to Egypt, to Morocco. Like, this is massive. And to be able to say, actually, we're a Roman colony, we get the same rights and privileges as Rome, was a big deal. Not just that, but these people in this church now would have been descendants of people, remember this, that they actually fought against Caesar in a civil war. They lost which usually you would die, you would be killed, or you would be enslaved. But instead, Caesar gives them an act of what's called cadiz, an act of grace, and says, actually, instead of killing you or enslaving you, I'm going to give you Philippi. Actually, the site of the battle, the big battle that you lost. So every day they would remember, that, oh, yeah, that battle we lost, instead of dying, we're actually not just allowed to live, we're given rights, we're allowed to vote. Our kids will actually be able to go to you know, a public school of education. They'll, they'll be able to be accepted. I mean, this is a big deal. Anybody who knows what it's like to be ostracized in a community, to be marginalized, to have your kids bullied, to be made fun of, to be boycotted, to be looked down upon, realizes exactly what a big deal this is. To the, to the point where you are accepted. And not just by some nobody, by Caesar. His face is on your coin. That's Caesar. The face on the coin that says, Caesar, the son of God. Like, that's, what the, that's what it said on the coins back then. This was a huge deal for them. And so it was a, a, a source of great pride and honor. For them to always be, uh, uh, you know, to be to be remind to remind others of Caesar. So much so, they built Philippi in a model of Rome. It looked like Rome. They wore the same clothes as Romans. They wore the toga. They talked like Romans. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, when in Philippi, you can do as the Romans do too, because they're they're trying to be like Rome. And so, this is the group. This is the group we're dealing with here. This is the kind of people that we're dealing with. And to make no mistake, this is a faith. This is a faith. Like, it's not just we love this guy. They worshipped him. It's not just we really like Caesar. They worshipped him. They actually made animal sacrifices to Caesar. And it actually makes sense in some ways. Because they would make fun of you if you, were, if you believed in God. They would say, oh, you're going to go to Yahweh for your crop to have a high yield this year? Uh, well, I'm going to go to Caesar, and he's going to actually do it. Oh, uh, you actually want to, we're afraid of that neighboring country who might attack and kill us. You're going to go to your God. Well, I'm going to actually go make a sacrifice to Caesar. And they actually would have these priests that would go to Caesar and be like, hey, Philippi needs an army. Can you deliver? And so it was this weird sense of, it was a faith that was like, go to a different church, really. It was like this other uh, faith, this other church in Philippi, and they were in staunch opposition to each other. And this is what they faced. 
Uh, okay, this is what they faced every day. Now, in Philippians 1.27, Paul uses a word he doesn't use anywhere else in the Bible. The reason I've painted this picture is because we need it, because this word is sadly lost on us in English. But in verse one, or sorry, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul begins this with only. Now, the Greek word there is monos. It means, if nothing else, listen to this, pretty much. Listen up. He's wrapping up the beginning of his letter. If nothing else, listen to this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now the word he uses for manner of life, conduct yourselves in the manner of life. Let it be worthy. So conduct yourselves in this manner. That word is polituo. It means become, conduct yourselves as respectable citizens. But what's he mean? Does he mean of Rome? No. He's saying, listen, you need to like take as much pride as you do in the fact that you are Romans, but remember your true citizenship, that you are citizens of heaven. And not just your rights and privileges, but your, actually your duties and responsibilities. We all have duties and responsibilities as citizens pay taxes, to obey the law, right? We have to abide by that. Um, And so Paul is saying, listen, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, how you conduct yourselves as a citizen of heaven, really to become a city within a city. Now, you you guys ever been to like um, San Francisco or LA? These big cities have like Chinatown and you go down to Chinatown and it looks really different. Like you can tell you're in Chinatown. It's not like super difficult to distinguish. Right, it's very easily seen as Chinatown, or like in a, in Baltimore, there's Little Italy. It's all you know, you can kind of tell you're in Little Italy. These ideas of cities within a city—that's what Paul's trying to help the church see. Is listen, you should actually become a city, a city of God within the city of Philippi, and it should be easy to see. It should be distinguishable. Now that, that cuts to our hearts, right? Because how distinguishable are we really? How much do people really know about you? When people see you, uh, is the first thing they think Christian. Oh, yeah, person of faith. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Are we really that distinguishable? Or do we blend in a ton? So I think the first thing that I read when I, or I felt when I read this was, oh, they are, they're facing really strong opposition. We don't really face that same opposition today. They would have been always reminded of it. Any dinner party, any dinner party they'd go to, they would have say a pr- said a prayer to who? To Caesar. Well, a Christian, what are they supposed to do? And they're caught in, the, in a pickle. Do we go to the dinner party? Because if we do, they're going to say a prayer to Caesar. They're going to pour out a drink offering. You know how Paul says, I'm poured out like an offering. They would always do that. It's called a libation. They'd pour out an offering to Caesar. They'd have, I'd have idols of Caesar. They'd have, it, was, it was called the imperial cult. So what did you do? But it, you always stood out as what? They're, hey, they're not praying. Why didn't, why didn't you pray to Caesar just now? Hey, why didn't you, why didn't you come to dinner? You know, there's always things that were coming up. And it was this very distinguishable sense of the church in Philippi, of of what they really were opposed. And it was something, and Paul doesn't go into detail here about what their opposition looks like, so we don't really know. But we we know that they don't need to be reminded of it, probably. um, But they're very aware of what that is. And if we finish the verse here, it says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you, that word is grace, but it doesn't make sense so much, so they translate granted or given. For it has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That's incredible. Paul just said, it has been grace to you to believe. And if we were to stop there, we'd go, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, and by the way, an extension of God's grace is for you to suffer. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's where I draw the line, Drew. Because I need to find a church that I like, a church that I'm comfortable with, people that I'm comfortable with, things that I want. If I suffer, it's a sign that I must need to change things up. We don't want to suffer. We don't like to suffer. And this is the heart of what I want to talk about this morning, is how can we stand out at like a city within a city? Well, it's how we deal with suffering. It's our mindset towards suffering. And that is how we can shine like stars in the universe that Paul will say later. That's how we can be different. That's how you can be different in Philippi is not just being better or stronger or whatever than the other church, than the other faith. In this case, not really a church of, of God. And that is just obviously it was satanic, uh, the imperial cult, but still a very strong opposing force. How do we deal with suffering? And so I want to talk today about the why of suffering, the why of suffering. And here in the verse, it's incredible because Paul calls them to do these incredible things. Can you imagine just to take, let's go in a time machine for a bit. Let's go back in time. Or let's just imagine that this is today, that your kids are being bullied at school because they're Christians. Okay. What are some things you're feeling or thinking? Okay. Maybe you're even your spouse persecutes you because you're Christian. When you go to the, just the market, when you go to the store, people look at you differently. They look down on you. Perhaps you overhear them talking about you. This is just the least of it, by the way. Perhaps they boycott your business. Perhaps Lydia. We know Lydia was in the church, right? She had a a business of of purple cloth. We know it from Acts. Perhaps her business actually took a big hit because most of her customers are not going to be Christian. They're going to actually be part of the imperial cult, who probably, by the way, would have loved the color purple. Oh, that's going to hurt, right? That's going to hurt business. Purple's a, a royal color. So imagine this, and that's just the least of it. But then Paul says at the end, you're sharing in the same suffering I'm going through right now. Well, what's he, where's he at right now? He's in jail. And then he goes, oh, and also the same suffering I used to have when I was with you. Where was he in Philippi? Jail. So probably that some of the Philippians are in prison. It could be. Are they been imprisoned? Are they been flogged? They've been beaten. They've been ill-treated. This is a church that probably has a lot of strain on their relationships because of suffering. You know, suffering puts strain on our relationships with each other, doesn't it? When we suffer, we begin to have issues with unity in the church. Uh, when things are easy, yeah, we love each other. It's all good. But when there's strain, relationships are the first thing to go out the window. And I love that he says to contend as one man. I used to love this passage. To fight as one man. Contend, the literal is to strive side by side in the faith. And to be unified in what? In the spirit. To be unified in the spirit. The spirit is the key to unity in the church. It's not like we want it to be, like probably that we make unity based on our life stage or unity based on uh, our hobbies or things. No, unity is based on the spirit. When the spirit's not present, and we'll talk about what that means a little bit later, but when the spirit's not present, when he's not there, it's really tough to have real true unity in the church. Paul calls the Philippians to live as respectable citizens of the gospel of Christ and to stand out as the city of God in Charlottesville and Harrisonburg, right? But in Philippi for them. How can this really be done? Do you really feel this? Do you feel like this with your relationships that you're striving side by side in the gospel? That you're contending as one man. That you're fighting as one person. You know, the Olympics is great. I love, you know, I haven't watched as much this year. Uh, turns out 
uh, this is our worst performing year in a long time, which I think is good for America's humility. I think we need to be humble. Uh, I think we need to repent and really take a look at have godly sorrow about that. But um, contending as one, okay? I love, you think about a body, if it's not contending as one body, it's going to have trouble doing much at all, let alone winning an event. But you see these bodies, right? You see that everything's like in, in, in motion. Everything's working differently. And, you know, maybe the legs go this way, the arms go that way. And uh, you think about even like uh, in some of these sports, like you're off by an inch. Some of these, these speed skaters or these short track skaters, like they're off by a half inch and they go flying into the wall and their whole life comes crashing down and you see it in their face. It's just so sad. It's like their whole life built up to one moment and they just look like, amen, idolatry, right? Be careful. But they have all this. But what I'm getting across is, is does that look like your relationships with those in the church? Do you contend as one? Are you unified in the spirit? I don't know about you, but I look around and I go, I don't know. I don't know. I, here and there, maybe, maybe on a good week, maybe on a bad week, definitely not. And I think a lot of it is dealing with suffering, church. You know, we deal with suffering in different ways. The reality is that we don't face opposition for being Christians like the Philippians did. We can still face opposition for being Christians. Um, sadly, actually, mostly comes from other religious people, more so than atheists or agnostics. Um, but we can also face other kinds of suffering, you know, the, the, those D words, right? Death. We can go through the suffering of, a, of the death of a loved one. We can go through the suffering of disease. We can go through the suffering of destruction. Uh, you know, something happens, something horrible happens. You know, we've had a lot of that in the church recently. Monica's dad having cancer. Praise God, he's cancer free. Um, but Monica's up there now with him right now, uh, going to church, which is awesome. Um, Carla Grubb, right? Cancer, right? Uh, a lot of diseases can happen. A lot of things, destruction, uh, destruction of property, destruction. All those things can really put a strain on our faith and a strain on our relationships with each other. For a lot of us, though, I think it's really... I think we can struggle with this in the area of unmet expectations in relationships. And this is a big one. And it's it's really humbling because none of us are, you know, we're beaten this week in the market square. None of us walked in today with bruises or cuts because you're Christian. None of us really did. And if you you have, amen. I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, That'd be incredible, actually, if you were persecuted. Uh, It means you're doing something right. But there's the thing is, I don't think any of us have really gone through that, but we actually really struggle, and I think Satan attacks our expectations in relationships. And we begin to to see little fractures in the church, little disconnects because we're not unified. And a lot of that's because of how we view suffering. You know, Paul calls them to stand firm in one spirit, to live as a colony of God. But here's the thing. You notice he doesn't really tell them why they're suffering. I mean, he says there's a sign to the destruction of others that if you hang in there, but he doesn't really tell them why they're suffering. He doesn't come in and say, hey, Philippians, I know it's tough now. I know you're in prison. Um, you really don't deserve that. You've worked really hard. Um, you know, I, I, knew was, I told you when I first you know, reached out to you and converted you that it was going to be easy. But here's the thing. Just keep hanging, hanging in there. And if you do, millions of people will read a book about you later through the Bible, and they'll actually be inspired by you. Here's the thing. Hang in there, Philippian church, because if you hang in there, then lots of people are going to... He doesn't really give them the why. Instead, he says, actually, your suffering is a part of the grace of God. He goes the other way. You know, with suffering, we usually say, hey, hang in there. You don't deserve this. You've worked so hard to have that thing. It's been taken away from you. I'm so sorry. You don't deserve to have that thing taken away. That's so so rough. We don't say, wow, this suffering is actually an extension of the grace of God. We say, oh, uh, grace is getting uh, more money, or grace is getting the girl I like, or grace is what? Oh, that's grace. But what about when you suffer? What about that? 
We don't view it that way. And that's so crucial to how we deal with suffering. Because a lot of people, they walk away from God or they walk away from other relationships when they go through suffering because of how they view it. And this is crucial. There is nothing more certain than the fact that you are going to suffer. You are. Accept it. You're going to suffer. And how we, we can deal with it in kind of a lot of ways. Later in uh, chapter 2, Paul will talk about how the church in Philippi struggles with their suffering by complaining and arguing. That can be a lot for us as well. We have unmet expectations in relationships, and we can complain. You're not loving my kid enough. You're not loving me enough. You never really understand. You don't love my wife enough. You don't love my husband enough. You don't uh, meet me where I need to be met. You're always this way. You're always that way. Your fashion's too good. Your fashion's not good enough. Uh, you have a really weird accent. I don't like your nose. You know, we can like put a lot of stress and, and have unmet expectations. We can complain, argue, and then we can argue about things that aren't really, you know, kind of big deals. We can argue a lot, argue about little tiny things, and it can fracture relationships. I like how he says, um, don't be intimidated in any way by them. Obviously, they're probably feeling what? Intimidated. They're probably feeling scared, fearful. They're probably feeling, oh no, we chose this Jesus guy. What if we made a wrong choice? Because all this suffering's coming down the pike. What if we made a wrong choice? Maybe we should go back to Caesar. Maybe we need to water down our convictions a bit. Maybe I should just go back to, you know, my mom and dad's faith. Maybe I should just go back to my neighbor's church. Maybe I should just go back to not trying to make any decisions in life that are remotely absolute because every young person now doesn't like that anyway. So let me just kind of just avoid all that. And we can be fearful. But Paul says, don't be intimidated. Don't be fearful. One way we can uh, deal with suffering is with moralism. A lot of religious people, if you're religious, you go, I'm suffering. I must have done something wrong. I'm suffering. Therefore, I need to have more faith. Just get more faith, more faith, more faith. That's how we can think if we're religious, right? I I must have done something wrong. We think of God as like a tit-for-tat kind of person, like, oh, you messed up. Here comes some suffering. Or you're doing well. Here comes some good stuff, right? And we can deal with it that way. Sometimes if the other side is not moralism, but cynicism. Cynicism says, well, God just always treats us like this. God must just be a horrible. If God exists, he must be a horrible guy or he must be out to lunch or he doesn't exist. This is just proof that God doesn't exist because there's just so much evil in the world. There's just so much evil. There's so much suffering. It just must be proof that God doesn't really exist. We can look at it with both moralism and cynicism, but this passage, along with many others in the Bible, blow up both of those perspectives. Neither of those are the right perspective towards suffering. Now, one thing we have to get straight first is that God's relationship with suffering is asymmetrical, if you want to put a word on it. God does not like for you to suffer. He doesn't enjoy it, but he allows it. Why? Why? God did not create suffering in the garden. Like in the Garden of Eden, there weren't, you know, famines and you know, desert, uh, you know, windstorms and earthquakes. And there, there was no, there was none of that. God did not intend that, but God allows it. You know, like think about Job. Job a- approaches God. He says, hey, listen, you got this servant Job. Uh, Satan approaches God. He says, you got this guy Job, you know, but he's really gone through no suffering. That's why, he, that's why he likes you, by the way, is because you haven't had him suffer. And God allows the suffering to take place. And a lot of us go, oh, that seems, why would God do that? It's so evil. Why would God allow Job to go through such a thing? Well, here's the thing. God allows suffering for a reason, and we've got to talk about why, but he doesn't enjoy it. God is not, God is not like for you to suffer, but he understands that it's important. God understands that suffering is important, and nobody wants to hear that when they're going through, when they're going through something tough. Nobody wants to hear, my, my mom just died, and that's going to produce something powerful in me. 
No one wants to hear it, but we've got to believe it, that God is God. He is all-powerful, and he is good. We have to believe it because, listen, God's going to allow these things to happen. But I, I like the way that it was said. God allows Satan to let you suffer only in as much as Satan can hang himself. He, he only gives Satan enough rope to be able to hang himself in this case. Because what's Satan's whole goal of trying to make you suffer? Why would Satan cause you to suffer? He wants you, he wants to strike at the heart. He, he's an accuser, right? So Satan goes, and this is what he says to Jesus in the, in the temptation in Matthew 4. Satan says, Jesus, you've been fasting 40 days. You must be hungry. If you're really Jesus, then turn this into bread. A, at the very basic level of food, is God going to provide for you? If you trust in this God guy, is he really going to have your best in mind? Okay, no, man lives on bread alone. Okay, how about this, Jesus? Throw yourself off this cliff. Won't, won't the angels save you? Oh, let's up it. Does God really care about you, Jesus? You're fasting. You're here. You're about to begin your ministry. But is God really going to help you? Is he really going to come through on his promises? And then finally, the last one, right? The last temptation. Think about Job. What does Satan say to, Satan say to, say to God? He goes, God, uh, yeah, of course Job's a great guy because he hasn't had to suffer. He, God, uh, just, uh, sorry, I get it all mixed up. Job says, no, I just said it again. Satan says to God, if he really loves you, he won't fall away. He actually, here's the thing Satan says. He says, God, you, Job only loves you because of the things you give him. Job only loves you, God, because of the things you have, you've given him. You've given him great flocks of cattle. You've given him a lot of wealth. You've given him a great family. Take that away, he'll curse you. That's Satan's whole goal. How about the Garden of Eden? How about the Garden of Eden? Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? No, no. God knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll be smart just like him. You'll be wise. You'll be just like God. He's striking at something that is true in all of our hearts, that we don't really trust God. And at the end of the day, we think God's just like us, that we're, he's really in it for himself. And got to give it to Satan here. I think he's onto something that's partly true about all of us. You ever been in a relationship uh, and you find out that the person's only really uh, pursuing you or loving you because of something you can give them? You know, let's say you're high up in your business and someone lower in the, in the business on the ladder wants to be your friend all of a sudden. But the second they find out that you can't open doors for them in the business world, they move on. You weren't being loved. You weren't being befriended. You were being networked, yeah. right? How about this? For A lot of us have gone through this romantically, that someone loves you only because they really want to sleep with you, and the second they find out they can't, they're gone, right? They didn't want you. They wanted what you could give them. This is how we, we can think. This is how Satan wants us to believe God is. Right. Everyone just really want, is in it for themselves. Everyone's got an angle. And you know what? God does too. God doesn't really love you. And by the way, Satan wants all of us to believe that's us as well. Yeah. Aaron Cripe doesn't really love me. He just only loves me when it's convenient. That person doesn't really care about me. And this is the heart of what we feel. And this is Satan's whole goal. His goal is to discredit God. So why does God allow suffering? Because God realizes that, hey, listen, this is actually the way to prove Satan wrong. The only way for you to really love God for who he is and nothing else is to go through suffering. The only way, because suffering is when the things you like, the things you love are taken away from you. Yeah. Oh, I can't play that sport anymore. I'm suffering. Well, you built your life on that thing. And now it's taken away and you're suffering. You built your life on that person. That person's taken away and you suffer. That's what the definition of suffering, right? And so we can choose either to build our life around those things 
or build our life on simply loving God in and of himself. This is the example, but still, what's the why? I think, first of all, we have to embrace the fact, we have to accept the fact first that we will not be given the why answer. Ah, what? I want to know the why. How many people have said, I could go through this suffering if you just told me why? I could make it through this suffering if I just knew why. What you're saying is, I could really trust God if I'm in control. It's a control issue. I want to be in control. Are you okay with not knowing why? Job never found out why. The Philippians never found out why. They were, but we can't be in it for the why. We can't love God just to get the why, just to get the reason. You say, hey, hang in there because if you do, a hundred years from now, a bunch of people are going to be really inspired. Your great-grandkids are going to become Christians because you're hanging in there. So just hang in there. Or if you hang in there, you'll make more money. Or if you hang in, if we get the why, it's really just about us. It's more or less an issue of control. Are you okay? And this is very important. Are you okay with loving a God that doesn't give you the answers you want? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with loving a God that doesn't give you those answers? Are you okay with staying in a relationship with a God that you can't control? That's a big one. We want to control it. We want to know all the reasons. I remember when I studied the Bible, I wanted to know every answer to every question. But the more questions I answered, the more questions arose. Right? Because here's the issue with everybody who becomes a disciple. What's the big battle? Jesus is Lord, not you. It's not about knowledge. It's not about these. It's about Jesus is Lord, not you. It's an issue of control. And Paul's trying to help the, uh, the Philippian church understand that this is a part of God's grace, that grace Actually, an extension of grace is for you to suffer. But here's the thing. Don't just resign yourself to that, by the way. Don't just say, ah, we'll never know the why. Okay, well, now we go through life as Stoics. We go through life, just take it. I'm suffering, but don't show it because God is good, but we're all like dying on the inside. That's not what we're talking about here. Embrace the fact that you don't have to know the why. Embrace the fact that you don't have to know the why because The challenge that Satan puts up is that you don't really love God. You just love God for the things he gives you. Or you love God for the people he gives you. You only love God if he's going to give you the guy you like or the girl you like. You only love God if it's going to be what you want. If it's going to have the job you want. The lie of Satan is that if you completely trust God and give yourself wholly to him, he will crush you. And he won't make you happy. Satan says if you give yourself to God, he'll just crush you. If you lay down your life for him, he'll just pierce you. He'll take you out. You won't be given what you want. You won't be happy if you lose control. We can think that people always have an angle. And there's a part of that that's really true. And whether you're on either side of that, it has hardened your heart. A lot of us have been the objects of people who've only used us. And it hurts, doesn't it, when someone just is using you for what they want. But a lot of us, I've been on the other side of that. I've been the exploiter. I've been the manipulator. The one who only goes after a friendship because of what it'll give me. And either way, that hardens our hearts. Either way, that kills our perspective. And Satan's Satan's winning. We've got to learn to love God for who he is alone. I love that song, God Alone. He is my rock. He is my salvation. Right? I, I will never be shaken. In him, I will never be shaken. God alone. Do we really love God for who he is in himself? Or do we love him for the things he gives us? The only way you're going to be able to learn to love God for who he is in himself is through suffering. But here's the thing. Can I be real for a second? I 
struggle with suffering because I don't really believe God loves me. And you go, hey, you're the preacher. You should, you should kind of believe that. Well, I believe it up here, and I believe it a lot of the time, but there are times when I go through suffering where I don't really believe it. I don't really believe it. And that's the problem with all this is we've got to really, truly know it, believe it. We've got to be in that rock. We'll never be shaken. Because here's the thing. When we suffer and our life is built on things and those things are taken away, we will just get madder and madder, sadder and sadder, worse and worse. But if our life is built in Christ's grace, suffering will drive us to God. Suffering will drive us back to that foundation. Suffering cannot touch us. You wonder why Paul is writing like this? I'm in prison and Epaphroditus almost died. But I write to you with joy. And I just am so excited about your fight in the gospel. And I might die over here, but I also might be able to preach to Caesar. And if I can do that, that'd be pretty awesome. I'm just so grateful that we can both experience God's grace like this, even though you're in prison and I'm in prison and we all might die. Right? What? How? How, how, how? Well, when we really suffer, we're actually driven back to God. Instead of, oh, I don't have my things anymore. I don't have these things that are so crucial to making me happy. Satan attacks this insecurity in us. He wants us to question God's love for us. The Philippians faced an apparently very real intimidating situation. Uh, It was a daily basis. The suffering put a strain on the relationships of them and of those in the church. But we must build our lives on the theology of grace and not things. Suffering will always tear you away from the foundation of your happiness. It's the definition of suffering. If you build your life on things, suffering will make you sadder and sadder, madder and madder, worse and worse. But here's the thing, church. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, be more like the Philippians. All right, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. We can't. No, don't do it. Be more like the Philippians is not enough. It's not enough. We've got to build our lives on grace. Because if our ultimate joy is God's love, suffering drives us deeper and deeper into that joy. Deeper and deeper into the source of our joy. The source of our happiness. The source of our peace. You don't think we'll look like a city of God if when we suffer we're actually joyful? When we're suffering, suffering, truly suffering. I say the word not lightly, but for us, honestly, it can be a little light. Like my Netflix account was suspended, suffering. Like... This can, it's, it's light, but it can be real, right? Or we get cranky, we get grumbly, we get complaining. I like to say, when I get grumpy, uh, you know, I tell my wife, I'm saying, I'm, I'm just Mr. Grumpy Pants right now, you know? Uh, it's kind of corny, but that's kind of the nature of our relationship. But, but I got my grumpy pants on, you know? I'm just grumpy. Uh, and to her, to her credit, she always says, do you need to pray? And uh, yes, I always need to, to do that. And it always helps me. Uh, but this can be an indicator, right? But what, what gave the Philippians this great knowledge, this great strength? How were the Philippians able to walk down a path of suffering without knowing why? How? Because 25 years earlier, another innocent sufferer cried out. 25 years before the writing of this later, a letter, Satan assaulted another innocent sufferer who cried out, why am I suffering and received no answer? That Jesus would suffer and die. And he would cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this happening, God? And receive silence. That Jesus is the only person in the history of time who knew that if he obeyed God, he would get nothing. And not just nothing, he would receive your punishment. That if he obeyed God, he would be crushed 
for your iniquities and pierced for your transgressions. That's how the Philippians could walk through that path. And also, you know what's incredible about that? Is Jesus is not just an example of like, oh, be more like him either. Because here's the thing. Jesus is our great lie detector test with Satan. God doesn't really love you. Are you kidding? He sent Jesus. God loved me for nothing. God in human form loved you knowing he would get nothing out of it. You can leave today and go live a life in complete opposition to God. You can do whatever you want from here on out. He knew that you would sin. He knew you will continue to sin. But he loved you for who you are in himself. He loved you for if he would get nothing from it. That is our great lie detector test with Satan. That is our great get behind me, Satan. I know that God loves me. I know that he loves me because he's the only one ever to truly love unconditionally. He didn't love you for what you would do for him. Jesus didn't go to that cross knowing that you would repent because you might not. He didn't go to the cross knowing you might love him back, but Jesus truly loved you. That's love. That's love. Not none of this stuff I'll just say about free love and romantic love and I can love whom I want. That ain't love. Jesus is love. That's the definition of love. And that ha- he has to be our foundation. He's the only person who's, who served God truly for nothing. Why did Jesus do it? Well, he did it for you. This is your proof that Satan is an absolute liar because God in human form to love you exactly for who you are in him. Now notice not who you are so you can stay the way you are. He loved you for who you are in him. And so if he loved us for who we are in him, you go and love him for who he is. Go love God this week for who he is and nothing else. Not because he's going to give you what you want or who you want, but because he is God. Love him for who he is. Accept him for who he is. And don't beg the question why, because that puts you in control. Be okay with loving a God. But know that he loves you. If you trust God, you don't need the answers. When you really trust someone, you don't need the answers. Jesus Christ didn't suffer for you so that you wouldn't have to suffer. Isn't that powerful? Jesus Christ didn't suffer so that you wouldn't have to. He suffered so that when you do suffer, you can be more like him. Isn't that awesome? We can think, oh, I shouldn't have to suffer. No, Jesus knew that you would. But when we suffer, we can look to Jesus and say, man, I can do that too. I can love. Because if his love changed my life, that kind of love will change each other's lives. Even though someone you're trying to be friends with in the church isn't really loving you the way you want them to, to love them like Christ, even though people in the world, right, are treating you with hostility or anger or abrasion, that you'll be like Christ. And that you will know when Satan comes knocking, hey, I don't think that person really cares about you. Basically, I don't think that God's really got your best interest in heart here. If you obey, if you dress modestly, if you date a pure dating relationship, uh, if you go to church that many times in one week, uh, if you read your Bible all that much, is God really going to give you those things you want? Is he really going to give us those things? But let's go love God for who he is alone. Church, in closing, if we love Jesus in this way, we will love another in this way. We will constantly, we will not constantly be thinking, what's in it for me? About friendships and relationships in the church. We will not mistrust each other. We will not be critical, argumentative, and impatient. We will start to resemble a city within a city. A city of God that shines in Charlottesville and Harrisonburg and beyond. Amen. Let's pray.
Uh, dear Lord in heaven, God, we're grateful for this time to be together. Uh, God, we're grateful for your son, Jesus. We're grateful you love us so very much, God. And we, we know, God, that we won't always know why. God, we won't always know why what's happening to us is happening to us. But I pray that we can love you, God. I pray we can remember your son. We're so grateful that we can know a God and love a God uh, who loved us first. That you began this great dance of grace, God, that you initiated with such unselfish love so that we can be unselfish as well. God, I pray that we can be a city within a city here in Charlottesville, that when suffering comes, and God, in this world today, it is a plenty. It is everywhere, God, where suffering is real. God, I pray that we don't neglect it or we don't put a damper on it, God, or we don't uh, just try to be stoic through it, God, as we know, God, that even when Epaphroditus almost died, God, Paul said, I would have grief upon grief. God, not that we're just robots. God, it's real. It's emotional. But I pray that we can just be at peace and at joy knowing, God, that you are a good God. Uh, we love you so very, very much, God. We want to pray for Teresa Dorier to feel better. We want to pray, God, for uh, Steve Chill, God, to continue to recover as he's uh, in stage one of his cancer, which is awesome. Uh, God, we want to pray for the church in Florida. God, in, the, in this church and in our sister church there, God, that has asked for the fasting. I pray that this 17 days of fasting, God, can bring opportunities for us to be able to bring your love and truth into relationships. God, we're so very sorry for what we've done, but we're so grateful that we don't have to hang around in guilt uh, and have worldly sorrow, God, but that we can allow that sorrow to, to uh, launch us, to project us, God, into a life of gratitude. Uh, God, we're so very grateful for your son. I pray we can know how amazing he is. I pray we can know how loving he is. And I pray that we don't ever forget what he's done for us. In his name, amen. amen. Now we'll stand for a final song.